This episode of the Orthobolids podcast will go over the topic of femoral shaft fractures from the trauma section on orthobolids.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Femoral shaft fractures are high-energy injuries to the femur that are associated with life-threatening injuries, for example, pulmonary and cerebral injuries, as well as ipsilateral femoral neck fractures. Diagnosis is made radiographically with radiographs of the femur, as well as the hip, to rule out ipsilateral femoral neck fractures. Treatment generally involves intramedullary nailing, which is associated with greater than 95% union rates. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, the incidence of femoral shaft fractures is common, making up 37.1 per 100,000 persons annually. Moving on to etiology, the mechanism of a femoral shaft fracture is traumatic and can be high energy or low energy. High energy trauma is most common in the younger population and is often a result of a high speed motor vehicle accident. Low energy trauma is more common in the elderly and is often a result of a fall from standing or can be secondary to a gunshot. Fracture patterns include transverse, which is secondary to a pure bending moment, spiral, which is secondary to rotational moment, oblique, which is from an uneven bending moment, segmental, which is secondary to a four-point bending moment, and comminuted, which is from a high-speed crush or torsion mechanism. Associated orthopedic conditions with femoral shaft fractures include ipsilateral femoral neck fractures, bilateral femur fractures, ipsilateral tibial shaft fractures, and ipsilateral acetabular fracture. In terms of ipsilateral femoral neck fracture, this has a 2-6% incidence. These are often basi-cervical, vertical, and non-displaced. The lack of displacement is due to the majority of the energy being dissipated through the femoral shaft. Know that an ipsilateral femoral neck fracture is missed 19-31% to of the time. In terms of bilateral femoral fractures, this has a significant risk of pulmonary complications, and there are increased rates of mortality as compared to unilateral fractures. Associated thoracic conditions with femoral shaft fractures include pulmonary injury and note that early surgical treatment of femur fracture can lead to ARDS in approximately 2% of cases. Know that treatment can proceed when the patient is appropriately resuscitated. Other associated conditions with femoral shaft fracture include cerebral hemorrhage and subdural hemorrhage. Know that early surgical treatment can exacerbate neurologic injury. And remember that intraoperative hypotension can decrease brain perfusion. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll talk about osteology, muscles, and biomechanics. So in terms of osteology, the femur is the largest and strongest bone in the body. The femur has an anterior bow. The linea aspera is the rough crest of bone running down the middle third of the posterior femur, and is the attachment site for various muscles and fascia. It also acts as a compressive strut to accommodate the anterior bow of the femur. As far as muscles, know that there are three compartments of the thigh, anterior, posterior, and adductor. The anterior compartment contains the sartorius and quadriceps. The posterior compartment contains the biceps femoris, semitendinosus, and semimembranosus. Finally, the adductor compartment contains the gracilis, adductor longus, adductor brevis, and adductor magnus. Moving on to the biomechanics, know that the musculature acts as a deforming force after fracture. So the proximal fragment will be abducted and flexed. It'll be abducted because the gluteus medius and minimus abduct as they insert on the greater trochanter. The proximal fragment will be flexed because the iliopsoas flexes the fragment as it inserts on the lesser trochanter. The distal segment will be in varus and extension. It will be in varus because of the adductors inserting on the medial aspect of the distal femur. It will be in extension because the gastrocnemius attaches on the distal aspect of the posterior femur. Now let's talk about the classification of femoral shaft fractures. 
the ones to know include the Winquist and Hansen classification, as well as the AO slash OTA classification. The Winquist and Hansen classification is divided into five types. Type 0, Type 1, Type 2, Type 3, and Type 4. Type 0 corresponds to no comminution. Type 1 corresponds to an insignificant amount of comminution. Type 2 corresponds to greater than 50% cortical contact. Type 3 corresponds to less than 50% cortical contact. And type 4 corresponds to a segmental fracture with no contact between the proximal and distal fragment. Moving on to the AO-OTA classification, know that the femur is designated as region 32 and is divided into three types. 32A, which corresponds to a simple fracture, 32B, which corresponds to a wedge fracture, and 32C, which corresponds to a complex fracture. These are further subdivided into subtypes. So 32A, which again is a simple fracture, is divided into A1, A2, and A3. A1 is a spiral fracture. A2 is an oblique fracture with an angle of greater than 30 degrees, while A3 is a transverse fracture with an angle of less than 30 degrees. 32B, which is a wedge fracture, is divided into B1, B2, and B3 subtypes. B1 is a spiral wedge, B2 is a bending wedge, and B3 is a fragmented wedge. Finally, 32C, which is a complex fracture pattern, is subdivided into C1, C2, and C3. C1 corresponds to a spiral fracture, C2 corresponds to a segmental fracture, and C3 corresponds to an irregular fracture. Now, let's talk about the presentation of femoral shaft fractures. So as far as the initial evaluation, advanced trauma life support, or ATLS, should be initiated. In terms of adequate resuscitation, remember that normal vital signs is a heart rate of less than 100 beats per minute, systolic blood pressure of greater than 100 millimeters of mercury, diastolic blood pressure of greater than 70 millimeters of mercury, and normothermia of greater than 35 degrees Celsius. Adequate urine output is 0.5 to 1 milliliter per kilogram per hour, or 30 milliliters per hour. Labs include a lactate of less than 2.5 millimoles per liter, a base deficit within minus 2 and plus 2, IL-6 levels of less than 500 picograms per deciliter, and a gastric mucosal pH of greater than 7.3. It's important to remember that compensated shock is commonly missed, and this includes normotensive, tachycardia without fever, cool extremities, narrowing pulse pressure, weak peripheral pulses, and delayed capillary refill. The main symptoms of a femoral shaft fracture is pain in the thigh. Physical exams should include inspection, motion assessment, and neurovascular evaluation. Inspection may reveal a tense and swollen thigh. Know that the blood loss in a closed femoral shaft fracture is 1,000 to 1,500 milliliters. For closed tibial shaft fractures, it is 500 to 1,000 milliliters. Remember that blood loss in open fractures may be double that of closed fractures. Inspection may also reveal that the affected leg is often shortened and there is tenderness about the thigh. With respect to motion assessment, examination for an ipsilateral femoral neck fracture is often difficult, secondary to pain from the fracture. As far as neurovascular examination, know that you must record and document the distal neurovascular status. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and lateral views of the entire femur. Other recommended views include an AP and lateral views of the ipsilateral hip, which is important to rule out a coexisting femoral neck fracture. Finally, another recommended view is an AP and lateral view of the ipsilateral knee. Moving on to CT, as far as indications, this may be considered in mid-shaft femur fractures to rule out associated femoral neck fracture. And speaking of femoral neck fracture, let's quickly talk about the ipsilateral femoral neck rule-out protocol, 
which includes dedicated 10-degree internal rotation AP hip radiographs, which places the femoral neck in profile. The protocol also includes fine-cut CT of the hip, specifically 2-millimeter cuts. The ipsilateral femoral neck rule-out protocol also includes intraoperative fluoroscopic exam of the ipsilateral hip, as well as dedicated postoperative radiographs of the affected extremity while the patient is still in the operating room. As far as the labs to obtain in the setting of a septic nonunion, you should obtain an ESR, CRP, which is the most sensitive to the presence of an occult infection, and a CBC, specifically the white blood cell count. As far as labs to obtain to confirm adequate resuscitation, IL-6 should be less than 500 picograms per deciliter, serum lactate should be less than 2.5 millimoles per liter, and base deficit should be within minus 2 or plus 2. Treatment of a femoral shaft fracture can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes long leg cast or a hip spica cast, which is indicated for non-displaced femoral shaft fractures in patients with multiple medical comorbidities. Other indications include pediatric patients. Operative options include antigrade intramedullary nail, retrograde intramedullary nail, external fixation with conversion to intramedullary nail within 2-3 to three weeks, and open reduction internal fixation with a plate. So antigrade intramedullary nail is indicated as the gold standard for treatment of diaphyseal femur fractures. In terms of outcomes, know that stabilization within 24 hours is associated with decreased pulmonary complications like ARDS, decreased thromboembolic events, improved rehabilitation, and decreased length of stay as well as cost of hospitalization. The exception is a patient with a closed head injury and know that it's critical to avoid hypotension and hypoxemia in these patients. So for these patients, consider provisional fixation, which is an example of damage control orthopedics. Retrograde intramedullary nail is indicated in the setting of an ipsilateral femoral neck fracture, a floating knee, which is defined as an ipsilateral tibial shaft fracture, and you can use the same incision for a tibial nail. Other indications for a retrograde intramedullary nail include an ipsilateral acetabular fracture, as this does not compromise the surgical approach to the acetabulum. Other indications for a retrograde intramedullary nail include multiple system trauma, bilateral femur fractures as it avoids repositioning, morbid obesity as this option avoids the difficulty of an antegrade start point with obesity, and finally, another indication for a retrograde intramedullary nail is pregnancy, especially in the first trimester, as this will cause low radiation exposure to the uterus. Contraindications to a retrograde intramedullary nail include skeletal immaturity, history of knee sepsis, as well as soft tissue injury surrounding the knee. As far as outcomes, know that results are comparable to antegrade femoral nails, and immediate retrograde or antegrade nailing is safe for early treatment of gunshot femur fractures. Moving on to external fixation with conversion to an intramedullary nail within two to three weeks, indications include an unstable polytrauma victim, vascular injury, and severe open fracture. As far as outcomes, know that there is no difference in union rates and infection rates with acute nailing. Note that the infection rate does increase if an X-fix is left in place for greater than 28 days. There is also a reduced risk of ARDS and fat embolism syndrome. Finally, moving on to open reduction internal fixation with a plate, Indications include an ipsilateral neck fracture requiring screw fixation, fracture at the distal metaphyseal diaphyseal junction, and inability to access the medullary canal. As far as outcomes, open reduction internal fixation with a plate is inferior when compared to intramedullary nailing due to the increased rates of infection, nonunion, and hardware failure. Now, let's talk about some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. So starting with the long leg cast or hip spica cast, Hip spica casting is typically used in pediatric patients less than 5 years of age with length-stable fractures. Long leg casting can be used in adult patients who are not surgical candidates. 
And remember, you need frequent follow-up for skin checks in these patients. Moving on to anterograde intramedullary nailing, the approach will include a 3-centimeter incision proximal to the greater trochanter in line with the femoral canal. As far as the technique, positioning includes supine on a fracture table or a, quote, sloppy lateral position. With being supine on a fracture table, the perineum will be well-seated against a post. The non-operative leg will be in a lithotomy bolster. It's important to ensure adequate positioning to allow CR maneuvering during the case. In the setting of a sloppy lateral position, this will be done on a radiolucent Jackson table. Large bumps are placed underneath the operative hip, and this places the patient in a partial decubitus position. As far as starting points, the pros of a piriformis entry is collinear trajectory with the long axis of the femoral shaft. The cons of a piriformis entry is that the starting point is more difficult to access, especially in obese patients. Another con of the piriformis entry is that this causes the most significant damage to the abductor muscles and tendons, which may result in an abductor limp. In addition, this option also causes the most significant damage to the blood supply to the femoral head, which may result in avascular necrosis in pediatric patients. Moving on to a trochanteric entry, the pros of this option is that it minimizes soft tissue injury to the abductors and it has an easier starting point than a piriformis entry nail. The cons is that it's not collinear with the axis of the femoral shaft, and you must use the nail specifically designed for trochanteric entry. Know that the use of a straight nail may lead to varus malalignment. Also know that too lateral of a starting point can result in varus malalignment. The ideal starting point is dependent on the relative position of the greater trochanter to the long axis of the femur. Note that this is just lateral to the long axis of the femur. With an anterograde intramedullary nail, you will use an entry reamer with a soft tissue protector or awl, and then you will pass a ball tip guide wire to the desired depth slash length of the nail. As far as reaming, begin with 8.5 to 9 millimeter reamer and then increase by 0.5 millimeter increments. Know that reamed nailing is superior to unreamed nailing with increased union rates, decreased time to union, and no increase in pulmonary complications. As far as indications for an unreamed nail, you can consider this option for patients with bilateral pulmonary injuries. In terms of femoral rod insertion, you will insert the femoral nail with 90 degrees of internal rotation. This leverages the anterior bow of the nail to direct the tip of the nail into the canal. This avoids medial comminution with the nail contact along the medial cortex. Finally, you will carefully mallet the nail to the appropriate depth after crossing the fracture site. As far as interlocking screws, as far as the technique, note that computer-assisted navigation for screw placement decreases radiation exposure. The perfect circles technique will obtain a perfect trajectory of interlock holes with the C-arm transducer, and you will use the angle of the transducer to guide the trajectory of the drill. Know that widening slash overlap of the interlocking hole in the proximal distal direction should be corrected with adjustment in the abduction slash adduction plane. Widening slash overlap of the interlocking hole in the anterior posterior plane should be corrected with adjustment in the internal slash external rotation plane. Know that reamed nailing has been associated with higher union rates compared to unreamed nailing. Reaming disrupts the endosteal blood supply but stimulates the soft tissue and periosteal blood supply to the fracture. Remember that the periosteal and soft tissue blood supply is the predominant source after fracture. Reaming extrudes the medullary contents into the fracture site, and this is technically autologous bone grafting. Also note that there is increased microemboli to the lungs with reaming. However, intraoperative echocardiogram studies have not demonstrated this to be significant. Remember that there are mild increases in marrow pressure with reaming, and the greatest increase occurs with nail insertion. This can be decreased with fluted nails, and this allows canal contents to extrude around the nail. 
remember that reaming allows a larger diameter nail to be placed, and a larger nail is stiffer and is related to the diameter to the fourth power. Ream nailing increases the area of ismic contact with the nail, and finally remember that there is no increase in infection rates after reaming open fractures. As far as post-operative care, after an antegrade intramedullary nail, patients will be made weight-bearing as tolerated, and range of motion of the knee and the hip is encouraged. The pros of an antegrade intramedullary nail is 98-99% to union rate, as well as a low complication rate, with the infection risk being 2%. As far as the cons of an antegrade intramedullary nail, know that this is not indicated for use with ipsilateral femoral neck fracture. There's an increased rate of HO in hip abductors with antegrade nailing. There's an increased rate of hip pain compared with retrograde nailing. And know that mismatch of the radius of curvature of the femoral shaft and intramedullary nail can lead to anterior perforation of the distal femur. Moving on to retrograde intramedullary nail, the approach includes a 2cm incision starting at the distal pole of the patella. You can use a medial parapatellar versus a transtendinous approach, and know that the nail is inserted with the knee flexed to 30 to 50 degrees. As far as the technique, these patients will be positioned supine on a radiolucent table. You will place a bump under the operative hip, and a radiolucent triangle is useful for eliminating the extension moment of the gastrocnemius in the distal fragment. The entry point can be an intercondylar starting point or a medial condylar starting point. The intercondylar starting point is the center of the intercondylar notch on the AP view and the extension of Blumensatz line on the lateral. Note that posterior to Blumensatz line risks damage to the cruciate ligaments. The trajectory of the intercondylar starting point is in line with the canal on AP and lateral views. The medial condylar starting point preserves the articular surface, however requires a curved nail to prevent valgus malalignment. For a retrograde intramedullary nail, you will use an entry reamer with a soft tissue protecting sleeve. You will then pass a ball tip guide wire, which should end proximal to the lesser trochanter. You will then ream the femoral canal. And remember that the fracture must be reduced to avoid eccentrically reaming the cortex. To ensure this, you can use an F-tool, bumps, joysticking with shans pins, as well as manual traction. Remember, you will start with an 8.5mm reamer, and then increase in size by increments of 0.5mm. You will then ream the canal 1 to 1.5 millimeters greater than the size of the intended implant. Then you will insert the femoral nail, and you should seat it approximately 1 centimeter deep to the articular surface to prevent patellofemoral symptoms. Next, you will place interlocking screws, and the aiming arm will be used for distal lockings. You can place it first and then mallet the nail to gain compression at the fracture with transverse patterns. Finally, you can use the perfect circle technique for proximal interlocks. Remember that the femoral neurovascular bundle is safe if the screws are placed proximal to the lesser trochanter. Postoperative care includes weight-bearing as tolerated, and again, range of motion of the knee and hip is encouraged. As far as the pros of a retrograde intramedullary nail, it is technically easier, there are faster operative times, quicker OR setup, it allows for addressing other injuries surgically without changing the patient position, there's less blood loss than antegrade nailing, it allows for direct comparison of rotation and leg length to the non-operative extremity. Union rates are comparable to those of antegrade nailing, and there's no increased rate of septic knee with retrograde nailing of open femur fractures. Cons include knee pain, increased rate of interlocking screw irritation, cartilage injury, and cruciate ligament injury with an improper starting point. Moving on to external fixation with conversion to intramedullary nailing within two to three weeks, as far as the technique, know that the safest pin location sites are anterolateral and direct lateral regions of the femur. Know that two pins should be used on each side of the fracture line. 
pros of this option is that it prevents further pulmonary insult without exposing the patient to risk of major surgery. And another pro is that it may be converted to intramedullary fixation within two to three weeks as a single-stage procedure. The cons include pin tract infection and knee stiffness due to binding slash scarring of the quadriceps mechanism. Moving on to open reduction and internal fixation with a plate, you can use a submuscular plating technique or a direct lateral approach. With submuscular plating, there's less soft tissue stripping than with the direct lateral approach, and this preserves the periosteal blood supply to the fracture. With a direct lateral approach, you will use a lateral incision in line with the femoral shaft. You will then incise the iliotibial band fascia. Next, you will elevate the vastus lateralis from the iliotibial band fascia and the posterior septum. You will then place a chandler over the anterior cortex to expose the lateral femur. You will then reduce the fracture with traction and reduction forceps. Finally, with respect to fracture fixation, you can place an interfragmentary screw for simple fracture patterns, and comminuted fractures will require a bridge plate. As far as special considerations, in the setting of an ipsilateral femoral neck fracture, the priority goes to fixing the femoral neck because anatomic reduction is necessary to avoid complications of avascular necrosis and non-union. In terms of the technique, preferred methods usually include a two-construct fixation, which includes screws for the neck with a retrograde nail for the shaft, screws for the neck and plate for the shaft, or compression hip screw for the neck with a retrograde nail for the shaft. Single construct fixation is associated with femoral neck fracture displacement and loss of reduction. Less preferred methods include an anterograde nail with screws anterior to the nail. This is technically challenging and is usually done if the neck fracture is identified after the femoral shaft fracture has been addressed. Now let's end this review session talking about some complications of femoral shaft fractures. The ones to know include heterotopic ossification, pudendal nerve injury, femoral artery or nerve injury, malunion and rotational malalignment, delayed union, non-union, infection, weakness, iatrogenic fracture etiologies, mechanical axis deviation, and anterior cortical penetration. So starting with heterotopic ossification, this has an incidence of 25%, and as far as treatment, know that heterotopic ossification in this setting is rarely clinically significant. Pudendal nerve injury has an incidence of 10% when using a fracture table with traction. Moving on to femoral artery or nerve injury, this has a very rare incidence, and know that the femoral artery is medial to the femur if proximal locking screws are placed proximal to the lesser trochanter in retrograde nails. As far as the cause of femoral artery or nerve injury, this can occur when inserting the proximal interlocking screws during a retrograde nail. In terms of malunion and rotational malalignment, this is most accurately determined by the Jean-Mart method which is the angle between a line drawn tangential to the femoral condyles and a line drawn through the axis of the femoral neck. Remember that femoral rotation equals beta minus alpha, where beta equals femoral neck rotation and alpha equals distal femur rotation. Know that antiversion and external rotation are positive values for the equation, while retroversion and internal rotation are negative values for the equation. Remember that femoral rotation on the right side minus femoral rotation on the left side equals relative alignment. Know that malrotation up to 15 degrees is usually well tolerated. As far as incidence of malunion and rotational malalignment, for proximal fractures it's 30% and for distal fractures it's 10%. As far as risk factors, use of a fracture table increases the risk of internal rotation deformities when compared to manual traction. Other risk factors include fracture comminution and nighttime surgery. As far as treatment, if noticed intraoperatively, be sure to remove the distal interlocking screws and manually correct rotation osteotomy is required. Moving on to delayed union, treatment is dynamization of the nail with or without bone grafting.
Moving on to non-union, this is defined as incomplete healing within nine months of injury or no evidence of healing on successive radiographs over three months. The incidence of non-union is less than 10%. Risk factors include post-operative use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and smoking is known to decrease bone healing in reamed anti-grade exchange nailing for atrophic non-unions. Know that broken distal interlock screws can be seen on radiographs. This represents the race between healing and implant failure being lost. Know that the distal interlock screws are exposed to the greatest stresses, and they undergo four-point bending stress. This results in fracture of the interlock screw in the region inside the nail. Treatment includes reamed exchange nailing, plate augmentation with nail retention, as well as compression plating. Reamed exchange nailing works by increasing construct stiffness, enhanced isthmic fit, and extrusion of reaming contents to the non-union site. As far as plate augmentation with nail retention, some studies have demonstrated higher union rates than exchange nailing, and it enables full weight bearing. Finally, compression plating allows compression of the fracture site, bone grafting, and removal of interposed fibrous material. Moving on to infection, this has an incidence of less than 1%. Treatment includes removal of the nail and reaming of the canal, and external fixation can be used if the fracture is not healed. Moving on to weakness, quadriceps and hip abductors are expected to be weaker than the contralateral side. As far as iatrogenic fracture etiologies, risk factors include anterograde starting point 6 mm or more anterior to the intramedullary axis. However, anterior starting point improves the position of the screws into the femoral head. This results in increased cortical hoop stresses with anterior starting points. Know that using an anterior starting point for a piriformis nail can result in a proximal femur fracture. Another risk factor is failure to overream the canal by at least 0.5 mm. Moving on to mechanical axis deviation, know that lengthening along the anatomical axis of the femur leads to lateral mechanical axis deviation. Shortening along the anatomical axis of the femur leads to medial mechanical axis deviation. Finally, anterior cortical penetration is due to mismatch of the radius of curvature of the nail to the radius of curvature of the femur. Know that the average radius of curvature of the human femur is 120 plus or minus 36 centimeters. Anterior cortical penetration can be due to starting points that are too posterior, especially piriformis starting points, with relatively straight nails. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 55-year-old male is involved in a motorcycle crash and sustains a closed right-sided mid-shaft femur fracture. This is an isolated injury. He is treated with retrograde femoral nailing and postoperatively is noted to have 30 degrees of internal rotation of the operative extremity when compared with his non-surgical side. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this malrotation deformity? And the choices are 1. External rotation of the distal femoral segment relative to the proximal femoral segment during nailing. 2. Internal rotation of the proximal femoral segment relative to the distal femoral segment during nailing. 3. Iatrogenic decrease in femoral antiversion on the operative leg during nailing. 4. Increased contralateral femoral retroversion during surgery. And 5. Internal rotation of the distal segment of the femur relative to the proximal segment of the femur during nailing. The correct answer to this question is 5. Internal rotation of the distal segment of the femur relative to the proximal segment of the femur during nailing. So internal rotation of the distal segment of the femur relative to the proximal segment of the femur during nailing can cause a malrotation deformity. 
Post-surgical internal malrotation after treatment for a diaphyseal femur fracture typically occurs either via internal rotation of the distal segment relative to the proximal or external rotation of the proximal segment relative to the distal. These clinical findings are consistent with an iatrogenic increase in femoral antiversion. Dimitriou et al. performed a study to quantify the side-to-side anatomic variation in the proximal femur and the implications for preoperative planning and leg length discrepancy following hip arthroplasty. CT-based 3D femoral models were reconstructed for 122 paired femurs in 61 young healthy subjects with no history of hip pathology. Significant side-to-side differences were found in femoral antiversion, horizontal offset, and femoral head center location. They concluded that relying on the anatomic landmarks of the contralateral femur during hip arthroplasty may not necessarily result in restoration of native anatomy and leg length. Karaman et al. conducted a study which sought to clarify the influence of a femoral rotational malalignment of greater than or equal to 10 degrees after intramedullary nailing on daily activities. They evaluated 24 femoral shaft fracture patients treated with close antegrade intramedullary nailing and determined the presence of malrotation with postoperative CT scans. 10 of the 24 patients had a CT-detected true rotational malalignment of greater than or equal to 10 degrees compared with the unaffected side and were noted to have significantly worse functional outcome scores compared with normally rotated femoral shaft patients. Espinoza et al. present a technique using intraoperative fluoroscopy and the antiversion inherent to the intramedullary nail for obtaining appropriate femoral rotational alignment during surgery. The authors state that their technique reliably sets the femoral antiversion within a normal physiologic range with minimal additional intraoperative steps and without preoperative measurements. And moving on to the final question, an 18-year-old patient sustains a comminuted left femoral fracture starting 6.5 centimeters distal to the lesser trochanter. He undergoes antegrade femoral nailing in the supine position on a radiolucent table. Upon completion of proximal and distal interlocking, both patellae are positioned facing the ceiling, and a lateral radiograph confirms the posterior condyles of both limbs are aligned. On AP imaging of both femora, it is noted that the lesser trochanter of the left or injured side is larger than the right or uninjured side. Assuming symmetrical antiversion, the left femur has been nailed 1 with varus malalignment, 2 with valgus malalignment, 3 with external rotation malalignment, 4 with internal rotation malalignment, and 5 with no malalignment. The correct answer to this question is 4 with internal rotation malalignment. So when the lesser trochanter profile is larger than the uninjured side, the proximal fragment is externally rotated. This leads to an overall internal rotation malalignment of the distal fragment. Malalignment is described based on the distal fragment relative to the proximal fragment. For more proximal femoral fractures, the proximal fragment tends to be flexed and externally rotated due to the iliopsoas. Matching rotation requires external rotation of the distal fragment when the patient is supine on a fracture table. Rotational malalignment is the most common complication of intramedullary nailing of a comminuted diaphyseal femoral fracture. The rotational profile of the lesser trochanter can be used to evaluate rotational alignment. The proximal femur is rotated until a neutral position is obtained as judged by the radiographic profile of the lesser trochanter. If the AP image shows a smaller lesser trochanter, there is internal rotation of the lesser trochanter. A larger lesser trochanter indicates external rotation of the lesser trochanter. Jarsma et al. describe CT imaging in determining rotational alignment. They note that the incidence of post-nailing malalignment of greater than 10 degrees is 40%, 
greater than 15 degrees is 20 to 30 percent, and greater than 20 degrees is 16 percent. They also note that patients with external rotation deformities have more symptoms than those with internal rotation deformities, and that small deformities of less than 15 degrees gives rise to less complaints. This is because external rotation deformities lead to compensation with hip retroversion, which causes more symptoms than hip antiversion when compensating for internal rotation deformities. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1 with varus malalignment and answer 2 with valgus malalignment are both incorrect, as difference in lesser trochanter size between sides is not indicative of coronal plane malalignment. And finally, answer 3 with external rotation malalignment is incorrect, as external rotation malalignment of the distal fragment implies relative internal rotation of the proximal fragment. Internal rotation of the lesser trochanter results in a smaller appearing lesser trochanter compared with the other side. That's all for this review about femoral shaft fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.